The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning. It's great to have you all. What a great time of worship this morning. Appreciate that. It was what a what a wonderful um, time to sing to God and to attune our hearts to Him and uh, get ready to hear. Uh, from what the Lord might want to share with us. We're in this series called God's Design. It's a challenging, challenging series. I think it stretches all of us. Uh, Every topic that we're going to talk about is a stretch. So it causes, I think, especially if you're speaking, causes a great deal of humility and dependence and and, uh, asking God, begging God for an attitude of love and uh, forgiveness on occasion, for sure. And it's So before we start, why don't we pray and ask God to teach us. Oh God, by your Holy Spirit, we all come uh, asking you through your Spirit to touch us, to open our ears to hear a word from you, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, uh, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, uh, to transform us where we need to be transformed. So we pray, Father, now that you would meet us as we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to talk about gender. I know, just just mentioning the word, it just maybe causes a little angst. Uh, So a little brief discussion. Where did we even get this word gender? The word gender actually comes from a Greek word, genos, and it actually has nothing to do with sex. Isn't that amazing? When I looked up every eight different ways a word is used, and it's never used of sex. The three most prominent uses of the word is, could be translated kind, or race, or peoples. So from the Greek word came the Latin word, genus. Uh, Genus, like we use genus species. Again, never refers to sex at all. Basically the same uh, rendering as the uh, Greek word. But eventually it became to almost be... synonymous with the word sex. What gender are you? Male, female. And then now recently, after the 80s, about somewhere in the middle of 80s, it began to be transformed. And uh, so now, uh, because I think we don't want to confuse what, what men and women do for who they are, it no longer refers, as it had for, for dozens of years, uh, decades, to sex. Now, it really... Uh, merely refers to more of society's expectations and reflections of ideologies than merely uh, sexual uh, XX chromosome or XY chromosome. So anyway, within this series, we're going to be talking about some very difficult, challenging issues. And and this one, I think, is for our society a challenging issue uh, for, for some people. And there's a lot of questions here. So my desire is just what does God have to say about it? Can he bring some light? Can he bring clarity here? And I think he will in, in a great way. It really helped me an awful lot. So I've spent about probably a month getting ready for this message. And uh, to me, it's been very eye-opening and refreshing and, and challenging at the same time. Without a doubt, when you think, when we use the word, we're thinking more gender roles. How do uh, men and women, sex-wise, how do they interrelate in a cultural setting based upon certain ideologies. So that's typically how we think about it. And when we think of it in that term, um, gender roles have changed 
dramatically over the last hundred years. Now, I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong. At this point, I'm merely identifying some of the changes, like child rearing versus parenting, courtship and marriage, uh, sex and shame, monogamy and divorce, the complementary roles of men and women, whether it be at home or in church. You know, all of these things have changed dramatically. And uh, it certainly has impacted the church. And by the word church, I mean not Parkview in and of itself, but worldwide, especially in the United States. For example, uh, changes in our view of, of gender identity has led many churches to be led by women. It's caused women to preach. Some men preach, some women preach. Submission is perceived as being inherently degrading. Sexual activity and uh, preference has become disassociated with marriage. Uh, marriage is more difficult to recognize. It's more difficult to define, uh, even legally, socially, spiritually. As an elder board, we're, we're dealing with that right now, even, even legally and socially. How do you define it? The authority of Scripture has been questioned. It's been marginalized. It's certainly been misrepresented and open to free interpretation. Those are some of the things that the church is facing over these last 30 uh, years. Let me give you, I'm going to start with a big idea. What am I basically trying to communicate to you? The idea that I'm going to support from Scripture, and it's this, that God's plan from the very beginning of creation is that there be equality between men and women, whether married or single, but also with complementary roles. That's the, the title of this message, and I worked on this pretty hard, but to be fair, gender uh, is equal value, but there are design differences. Now, let me just say that flies in the face of what the culture is defining as gender identity. The culture defines more of a, an egalitarian kind of view that gender identity, equality, must be sameness. That's what the culture is arguing. arguing. Equality must be sameness. My argument is, hopefully from Scripture, hopefully I'll be able to show you this, is that that has not been nor ever has been God's design or intent. So my goal this morning is to encourage you to resist the world's attempt to rob you of the vision and the beauty of human life which God has ordained, which was designed for his glory and for our good. What I'd like to do is talk about gender identity first when it comes into the whole play of redemption itself. In 1972, something happened. It was called the Equal Rights What? Amendment. 1972. It took 50 years to become an amendment, 1972, but it was never ratified by three quarters of the states, and therefore it still is not part of our Constitution. Iowa ratified it, our brothers and sisters to the south of us, Missouri, still have not ratified it. Uh, our brothers and sisters to the east of us, the whole state of Illinois, still has not ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. So it still is not part of our Constitution. Whether or not it's a part of our Constitution is one thing. The important thing is, what, what does God have to say about it? What does the Bible have to say about it? 
how should Christians view gender identity or gender issues? I'm going to take you right to the key text. If anybody holds, even for those who say that they're Christians and believers in Jesus Christ, but they hold to an egalitarian view, in other words, um, our, our male and femaleness, equal value is sameness, they would point to this text. This is the number one key text. Pivotal text. It's been called the feminist credo of equality, the sexual liberation of the Apostle Paul, the Magna Carta of all humanity, and it's Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ. So what does Galatians 3.28 have to say about men and women? Again, the Bible is an account of how God made everything. He made everything to his glory. And because we fell, he's redeeming mankind. He's bringing us back into a relationship with him and wants to restore things back in the order that he established them. That's basically the whole story of the Bible. And the New Testament really hones in on the one that he sent, Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Father, God the Son sent Jesus to die on the cross for us to restore our relationship uh, with him. So the New Testament has this book called Galatians. It's one of the Apostle Paul's earliest books. And in this book, basically the whole theme of the book is this. He wants to share with these new Christians, brand new Christians. Many of them have come from Gentile backgrounds. Many of them have come from uh, backgrounds in Judaism. He is saying... The gospel really means that you only trust in Jesus. Salvation is only trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone. It's not trusting in Jesus and anything else. So he makes this argument throughout the whole book. It's not trusting in Jesus and following Jewish laws. It's not trusting in Jesus and observing Um, holidays or certain feasts. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And for those who trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, you are God's children. You are joint heirs together, one in Christ. So there's neither Jew or Greek, slave nor free. There's no male, female, for you are all one in Christ. So Paul's purpose in these three pairs here is to show that the distinctions which were were at the time fundamental to certain privileges in Judaism really don't apply to the church at all because salvation is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So in other words, in Israel, slaves could not uh, inherit. But in Christ, slave or free, We are all heirs of God. We all become children of God and we all become joint heirs. So he's taking that distinction of Judaism and he's saying that it doesn't apply to Christianity. Likewise, Gentiles could not even approach. They couldn't even go into, they were limited to certain parts. They couldn't get into the temple. The Jews could get into the temple, but he's saying, you know what? Jew or Gentile, that's no longer the case. You you can both become priests to God. Both. So there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. You're both priests. 
likewise. Uh, in ancient Israel, uh, women could not receive the covenant of circumcision. But he's saying in Christ, both can be baptized and receive the covenant of baptism. So they're the same in Christ. So it's not about roles within the body at all. But this whole text is given to show that there's common initiation into the body of Christ. In other words, it's our common privilege, whether you be a Jew, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, you're commonly brought into the body of Christ. So Paul's point is not to abolish distinctions, rather just not to allow those distinctions to prevent inclusion in the church. So all of those groups are equal, adopted into God's family as, as sons. So if that's Galatians 3.28, is it consistent with the rest of the Bible? So what does the rest of the Bible say about these issues? So real quick, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning because that, that, was, the, that was the original creation before the fall. Let's go back there. Genesis 1 and 2, we were created by God. We are bearing his image. This all took place before the fall. We were made interdependent, or you could call, you could use the word complementary to one another, and yet we both reflect his image. And yet at the same time, both male and female were totally dependent upon God. Men were to work, to, to rule over the creation. Women were to be a helpmeet in this work. Women were given the blessing of bearing children. Both sexes were declared to be made in the image of God. Both were declared to be very good. And then something happened. That was Genesis 1 and 2. Something happened in Genesis 3, and that was called the fall. And when the fall took place, that was the curse, God cursed them within the context of their very roles that were made by him originally uh, to really fulfill the image within creation. So the man's work and the woman's work were both made more painful. So there were complementary roles. There were roles. There was work. There was bearing children. All of these roles were taking place before the curse. But after the curse, there was pain interjected within that work. Okay, so, and I have this in your notes there, so took a long time to write it, so there it is. Gender distinctions, gender roles didn't come before the fall. Rather, in the fall, the very things that were natural in our lives became perverted. They became perverted by pain and distorted by difficulties. So the common difficulties and pains that were designed by God really are designed to cause us to ask, to approach God and maybe turn to God and say, why? Why? I, I think a, a lot of times in marriages, when marriages struggle or, or at work, in work situations or in other kinds of relationships, we, we, it, it forces us to go, I don't understand. I don't understand the tension. Why is this happening? And it causes us to turn to God. So why is there so much confusion today? So if we could look back to before the fall, and if we can look to the life of Jesus, what he says in the New Testament, we can find out that bottom line that, that men, we find them initiating, protecting, providing. We find them as a servant dying to themselves. 
leading and leading it in such a way that they give their lives for the person they're leading. We see this beautifully illustrated in Jesus himself. We see this in the relationship of authority between God the Father, God the Son, even before the fall. Women, we find them affirming, nurturing, loving, encouraging, respecting. And yet there are many other honorable activities that a woman can do. And I think the problem comes here. The problem comes is in that, and I would say it's especially true for evangelical Christianity, we have tend to made narrow boxes and we say, okay, ladies, here's your box and this is where you can perform. You know, without sin, you're, you're fine here. And what has amazed me as I have studied the scriptures these, this past month is that the box is way bigger <laughs> Than, than perhaps what we have thought, okay? And uh, so just saying it up front, this message has been very good for me. It reminds me to really appreciate uh, your beauties and your glories uh, that he created you to be and are. It, it is really, it's just made me, my wife sitting back there, it made me, has made me appreciate my wife uh, so much more and the beauties uh, that are just filled in her life. And uh, so you ladies, our sisters, please hear from me. You are in no way like a a second-class Christian. Please, if it ever comes across that way, uh, it might come across that way from me inadvertently, but that is not coming from God, okay? So if I misrepresent God, that's on me, and I hope he challenges me and corrects me. But I'll do my best to present this very, very accurately. So what I would like to do is just to show you uh, so many examples throughout the Old and New Testament how big the box is when we're talking about roles, okay? Now, it becomes a little narrower within the context of the local church and in the family, there's some very specific role distinctions and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let me just show you how broad it is outside of the context of the family and without outside of the context of the local gathered uh, church. For example, right now, you, you look at all the political debates and, gee, whether you're Democrat or Republican, there are men and women on both sides. And you might think, well, is that okay? Is it okay for a woman? Like uh, Carly Fiorina is, is a Christian lady for, for sure. And she's, is that, is that all right? Well, Deborah acted, she was a leader in her nation. The Bible mentions both kings and queens. Um, kings like David, queens, they were bad queens like um, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab. But there were good queens. Queen Esther was a good queen. Candace, good queen. Um, God used many men and women as prophetic messengers. We're all, we are going through Isaiah. We know that Isaiah is a prophetic messenger. But at the same time, Isaiah's wife, Huldah, was a prophetic messenger. Uh, we, we talk about Moses all the time, but Moses' sister Miriam was a prophetic messenger. We have Anna in Luke chapter 2. In fact, the Gospel of Luke highlights the roles of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, as well as Mary, the mother, the virgin mother of Jesus, as having even more faith than their husband, Zechariah or Joseph. And you have Philip's daughters as well in the Bible, both New and Old Testament. So most of the books of the Old Old Testament and New Testament are written by men. God clearly has spoken through both men and women. 
So in the Bible, you see in Judges 5, Deborah's song. You see Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. You see Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. You see women in the Old Testament bringing sacrifices to the, to the temple for purification. We see women serving in the tabernacle, for example, in Exodus 38. We see them singing in the temple choir in Ezra chapter 6. When you look at the life of Jesus, his attitude toward women was so different from the rest of the culture around him. He had an extremely enlightened view, and he had both men and women together, which was highly unusual for the culture, listening to him and to his sermons. He had women helping him, supporting them, hosting them, uh, and it was the women who remained with Jesus at the cross when the men fled. You, you, it was women who went to the tomb first on a Sunday morning. It was the women who found the tomb empty. It was the women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. God in, again and again and again underscores women who were in the line and brought salvation to the world. When you think about it, uh, you, you look at the genealogies in Israel, it was unheard of to have a genealogy where women were even mentioned in the genealogy. It was all men. But you turn to the New Testament, you open the book of Matthew, and it's woman after woman after woman after woman mentioned in the genealogies. Uh, Jesus, whenever he told stories, some of the main characters were women. Both men and women inherit the kingdom of God. He has a very high view of marriage. He attacks the way women were abused. He, Jesus encourages, and this is unheard of, the honoring of both uh, parents, the, the, the father and the mother. Jesus presented women as examples of true faith over and over. You have the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. You have the, the crippled woman in Luke 13. The generous woman in Mark 12. You have Mary and Martha and his own mother Mary. We have the Samaritan woman in John 4. As a matter of fact, you looked through, I just looked this up a couple of day, days ago. The first person ever mentioned to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament was a woman. Elizabeth. John the Baptist's mother. So you have them believing, you have them members of the church, you have an equal standing. Uh, so in, the, in this first century culture, Jesus places an unusual prominence on women. So if you or I were to ever at that point in time to design a movement to take over the world, folks, this was an absolute recipe for disaster where you would highlight the women as the heroes and the men as the villains, where you would have the women be the first ones to discover him raised from the dead. You know, anyone to concoct such a story to reach a culture would have been a horrible recipe for disaster. To me, that just underscores the trustworthiness of the scriptures. Again, the scriptures told it exactly as it was. So we're not surprised when Paul mentions so many women by name in his letters and commends them for their hard work. As a matter of fact, you know, in the, in the New Testament, you know, people like to follow the, you know, who's best leader, you know, that section where I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. Remember that one? Oh, Apollos was the up-and-coming eloquent preacher of the day. Well, guess where he got instructed? Priscilla. 
when she came into town, they recognized that she didn't have enough biblical understanding. So Mr. Aquila sends his wife Priscilla, who had an unbelievable understanding of Scripture, to teach Apollos the Scriptures. And after so doing, it was applauded and thanked. Now, that was not in the context of the gathered worship service. So Paul's the one who mentions women name by name. Uh, Thus again, gender, equal value, but there are design differences. So last week, Steve had asked me to um, go through the history of the church, of Parkview Church. And so I'm, I'm spending a month on this, okay? And so while I'm going back through the history, all of a sudden it hits me. The unbelievable influence of women on Parkview Church. Even going back to 1932 when it started, it was started by five women. Five women who had a passion to reach young kids in a, in a trailer park because they didn't have the gospel. So they started a Sunday school. On Sunday, they weren't going to church anywhere. They started a Sunday school. Five ladies started a Sunday school with little kids. It eventually became the Corville Gospel Church, which in a few years became the Corville Bible Church, which in a few years became the Corville Evangelical Free Church. So that's in the 30s, 32. Then we get to the 40s. We have, have this one lady who becomes a Christian. And she happened to be a nursing student. Her name was Helen Haubacher. Helen Haubacher becomes a Christian. Man, and, and she just starts, she turns a, the nursing school upside down. Starts leading people to Christ. And she leads this one lady to Christ. Her name was Marvel. Leads her to Christ. Uh, it was during the war. Uh, her boyfriend, she was engaged to be married, was a pilot. He goes down. World War II shot down. He dies. Well, there's another farmer guy, not too far away, Clifford, you know, really had the hots for Marvel. So he starts, he's not a Christian though, he starts coming, he knows she's going to church, so he starts coming. So Sunday night, she and the pastor lead him to Christ. So Marvel and Clifford get married. They have kids, they lead their kids to Christ. Uh, One of their kids, her name was Marcia, meets another guy, small town Iowa, his name was John. They get married, John and Marcia Kinzenbaugh. Uh, get married. They have kids. Their kids are, are led to Christ. They have kids. They've got four generations from this Helen Hobacher. It's incredible. So the church is just exploding. Nursing school, you know, we, we have uh, so many people have been influenced just from the life of one person coming to know Christ. So 1948, uh, you know, the, the church is growing. They're still, they've been renting for 21 years. They rented for 21 years before they eventually moved into a building. But they bought this land, 1.7 acres over in Corville, Fifth Street, bought 1.7 acres, and, uh, but they never have enough, enough money to start building. So they never built, never built, never built. And then finally, this professor who's going to church, S.R. Harding, who used to write letters to the Beacon, uh, published by the Evangelical Free Church. So uh, Professor Harding says, until, quote, after much prayer, she, we don't even know the lady's name, but it's a lady. We don't even know her name. She's not even a member. She's an attender. She's an attender at Parkview. After much prayer, she, offered $1,000 on the condition that, quote, we vote to start building immediately and trust God to provide the work as the work progresses. And it started. 
That's 21 years of renting. So Helen Haubacher becomes a Christian, leads all kinds of nursing students to Christ. Those nursing students lead other people to Christ. And so uh, when she goes to Moody Bible Institute, she, she makes such an impression on the president of Moody Bible, his name was Bill Culbertson, that when the position of pastor opens up at Corville Evangelical Free Church, he sends his son, Robert, to become the pastor. You know, so he becomes a pastor. He has this tremendous uh, appetite for reaching college students for Christ. Okay, so a lot of nursing students, uh, medical students are coming to know Christ. He wants to reach the whole college. So the deaconesses say, you know what? We want to reach college. How are we going to get the college students here? The deaconesses say, well, I'll tell you what, if we want to reach college students, the only time that they don't have a meal is Sunday night. So why don't we just sort of open the kitchen, throw some food on, and invite them to come, and you can talk to them when they're here. And that's what started the college ministry. You know, the deaconess say, what can we do? How can you use us? And let's, let's get in and let's get it done. Those were the women. Those were the women of the church. So things explode. That's the 50s. In the, that was in 1957. In the 60s, um, now the missions movement, because Helen Habacher goes to Moody Bible Institute, Sudan Interior Missions, Nigeria, things are exploding. So they say, hey, you know what? Let's just sponsor the whole missions conference for the entire Evangelical Free Church of America. Let's have it right here. That's a, the deaconesses did that. They sponsored the whole, for the whole denomination here in Corville. That was in the 60s. Um, by the 70s and 80s, you have so many doctors, so many nurses coming to know Christ, that college students coming to know Christ, that we begin to, we still support these missionaries, folks. They're, they're still on the field today that during that time period, they committed their lives to Christ, committed themselves to be used for the gospel, and they're still on the mission field today. We support them today. By the time... That's in the 80s, by the 80s and the 90s, I get here and then, so I'm interviewed in 1990, end of 1990, and actually come at the beginning of 1991 for my candidating. When I got here, uh, there was, there was a, a singles ministry that was just blowing the doors off of the church. Guess who led it? Julie Pennington. No staff, Julie Pennington led the whole, led the whole deal. Uh, my first Sunday here, we had 175 people. First Sunday here, 175 people. That summer, we had VBS. A lady by the, a lady by the name, not on staff, a lady by the name of Judy Nyron. 175 people here my first Sunday. That summer, we had 350 children and 100 workers that summer for VBS. And listen, I can go on and on. You know, I think of Eleanor McClellan. I, I think of Ann Campbell. I think I saw Ann. Is she back there somewhere? Yeah. Ann, hold your hand up. <laughs> there she is back there. You all need to give her a hug on the way out. You need to give her a hug. Uh, listen, I, I could go on and on through the history of Parkview and to see the responsiveness of the women in church that they, you know, weren't boxed in. Uh, and so please, you know, we have, we have a couple little uh, kiosks out there. If you're interested in going for broke, if you're interested in moving and going, you know, our, the head of our deaconess committee is out there. We have people from our, our women's ministry team out there. We would love to talk to you and just inspire you, uh, you know, if you're really uh, ready to go for it. Well, what does it all mean? What does it mean? 
Let me just say, first of all, what it, it doesn't mean that there's no hierarchy or that there's no authority. We see hierarchy or authority before and after the fall. It's the fall that merely shows the distorting effects of sin. We see man's abdication, man's tyranny, as well as the woman's deception and rebellion. So I think one of the most destructive effects of the fall is to distort God's good authority in our lives and along with that, all other authorities. That's why Paul in Ephesians talks about submitting to one another and he gives, whether it be in marriage, whether it be in, in the work environment, whether it be parent, uh, kids and parents, in every environment there's authority and there's submission. Every, every environment there's that. The fall through the pain into the whole thing. So authority well administered blesses and gives life to those under it with God being the prime example. When you see Jesus submitting to the father and giving his life for the bride. That's the picture of a husband-wife relationship. That's, that's the model for husbands. We die for the beauty of our wives. That, that, husbands, that's your role. You serve. It's a servant leadership. It's sacrificial loving. You die to bring out the beauty of your wife. That's what Jesus did to the bride, the church. So authority well administered blesses and gives life to those under it. Authority, now catch me because I'm going to go back to the fall. Authority sometimes grants and authority also at some times denies. This was the point of Satan's attack. Adam and Eve desired the apple. God denied. They couldn't accept that. They didn't accept hierarchy, authority and submission. God denied what they wanted. So in the first garden, man rejects God's will and it results in death. In the second garden, the second Adam, Jesus accepts authority, accepts submission, accepts the Father's will, and in so doing, he brings life. So what does it all mean? It doesn't mean that there's no hierarchy. Our genders help us to understand God better. God is one, and yet at the same time, he's plurality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal value, but design differences. Thirdly, our, our genders help us to understand Jesus and salvation. Without the Son's submission to the Father, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Remember in the garden? Without the Son's submission to the Father, none of the good of salvation would ever have come to us. So we must reject any and every view that suggests that submission is inherently degrading. It was no more degrading than it was to Jesus. It's not degrading for an employee to submit to an employer. Gender identity. What about roles within the church? 
Hopefully now, we can agree that our genders reflect the truth about the Godhead. It, design, it reflects who God is. We've seen many of these factors already. But where are their role distinctions? Let me just highlight two very quickly. What are they? When are they to be different? Why should they be different? There are two major exceptional differences within the context of the gathered church. Um, elders are responsible to lead the local church. Men are responsible for teaching or preaching in the gathered local assembly. Maybe it could be more specific to even corporate worship. And uh, you might think, well, well, why? Why is that? And we'll get to that in just a second. Likewise, in the home with husbands and wives, we're to image to the world the pre-fall authority of leadership and trust. You could insert maybe the word submission. And you might, I know you're probably sitting there and and you're thinking that's so odd. It's so odd uh, for the same faith that would underscore the uniqueness and dignity of women and then command the leadership within a local church to be governed by elders who are men and to have the preaching limited to Men, especially confusing when there are so many women so qualified, excellent leaders, excellent teachers, and I must say, far better than I would ever hope to be. I know because I've heard them. Excellent. Like the Priscilla's of the world. And let me just say too, uh, I give any sister here permission to come up and help me. You know, if, there's, if, if you are the Priscilla and I have erred, please feel free to come up to me and, and help me. I, I urge you to help me. Um, but I do want you to know, ladies, that you are a delight to pastor. You are a delight and a privilege to have a congregation filled with so many bright godly, passionate, and committed, mature women of faith. So, you know, in no way is this message condemning of you. Uh, I honor you and thank God for you. But you might say, well, why is this? Why would leadership be limited to the elders being men or the preaching role be limited to men? It makes no sense. I'd love to explain that. Okay, this is my best, the best way I can do it is this. It was God's idea before the fall and the creation of male and female, God designed an image of the same authority that's present in himself along with the son eternally submitting to the father. Yet in that context of authority and submission between the father and the son, they They dwelt together in glorious love and commitment within their roles. And so male and female today, whether it be in the church or in the home, are designed to be a pointer back to that perfect, undistorted image of the Godhead. But when the fall took place, 
everything got flipped on its head. Everything. Total role reversal in every area. Man was to be and have authority and domination over animals. Here, we have animals over men. We have women ruling men. We have men preferring himself over God. We have man passive when he should have been active. We have women active when they should have been passive. Eve's sin, and she admits this in Scripture, her sin was that she was deceived. Adam's sin was that he stood by and said and did nothing. Her sin brought deception. Adam's sin brought death. So Adam didn't lead in the garden. So now he's called to lead in the home as well as leading in the church, the bride of Christ. Adam, who remained silent at the first garden, is now called to speak up. To speak up in the church of the living God as it worships and instructs as well as in the home. I think like Eve was intended, as Christians, we are called on every front to honor authority and honor submission. It's not bad. It's good. It's good. It's the picture of Jesus' submission to God. Pictured in the marriage, pictured in the home, pictured in the church, pictured at work, pictured with governmental authorities. So as there was a role reversal in the first garden, so in the second garden, there was another role reversal. Adam stood in the garden and silently abdicated his responsibility and he failed his wife. Jesus, the second Adam in the second garden, knelt in that garden and he gave himself up to purchase his bride. Husbands, that's your role. Adam's sin brought guilt and death to us all. The second Adam, Jesus, in the second garden, his obedience brought life to all who would trust him. You know what our problem is? Our problem is, in life, it's a whole lot easier to identify with Adam and Eve. And there is the struggle. It's a struggle with authority. It's a struggle in the church. It's a struggle in the home. But it is never intended to be that way. And the whole intent is to drive us back to the cross. That's why we're having communion, to drive us back to the cross. To ask God's forgiveness, to ask his cleansing, to ask for his filling of the Holy Spirit, to help us to be the men God wants us to be, to lead the way we should be, to speak the way we should speak, for women to be the women they should be as well. So let me pray. And as I pray, if those who will be serving the elements, if you will go ahead and come forward at this time. So, oh God, this is a very challenging um, topic. But Lord, it is truth, 
truth that we can depend on, truth that we can live by, truth that will reflect who you are, not only to ourselves and to this congregation, but to the world around us that is longing for answers. So I just pray, Father, that you would speak to us now as the elements are being passed, as we confess our sin to you, whether we're a male, single, or married, whether we've abdicated responsibility, where we're sitting by passive, uh, whether we are refusing to lead, refusing to talk, I pray, Father, that you would inspire us to help fulfill that role that you have called us to be, to be that sacrificial leader and lover. And I pray, Father, too, for women here, whether you be single or married, whatever state God has called you in, one's not better than the other, they're both gifts from you, to be the woman God has called you to be. I pray that through today you'll see that the box is probably way bigger than what you thought it would be. And yet, though, in a couple of contexts, it might surprisingly be narrower than what our flesh would like. And yet it is a privileged, honoring, glorious position. So we thank you. We pray that you would speak to us now, prepare us as we uh, ready ourselves to celebrate the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. And if this is for believers in Jesus Christ, as the elements pass you by, uh, if... If you're not a Christian, just let those elements pass by you, okay? And then we'll celebrate by taking both of them together. Before we take the elements, I just want to extend an invitation. If you're here, if you're, if you're a woman and you're just wondering, boy, I want to be unleashed. I am ready to be unleashed. We have a table right out here in the lobby on the way out. Uh, there's a chairman of the deaconesses who are there. Uh, we have uh, women's ministry team leaders who are there. We would love to unleash, help you get unleashed. If, if you're a guy, if, if you're a guy and you're going, man, I need some help too. Can I ask if you're an elder here or somebody on a male staff member or an elder here, if you would stand just real quick, just stand right where you are. Any elders, any deacons, how many deacons, elders? Okay. Just grab one of these guys, grab them after if you all could just be available. And uh, man, we, we'd love to get you headed in the right direction. There are a lot of opportunities for you as well. Well, at the Lord's table, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. So he gave his body so we can be the men and women of God that we were always designed uh, to be. And it was because Christ went through this that we can be the reflection of the entirety of um, who God designed us as males or as women, uh, whether it be at home whether it be in the workplace or whether it be in the church. So let's take the bread together. He gave him the cup, and after he had given thanks, he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, you're not going to drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. So we get to reflect now to the world uh, what the forgiveness of sin, how that not only cleanses us, but restores us and prepares us to be that accurate reflection of God's eternal relationship and what he has called us uh, to be, especially through the church, but through the home and at work in every area of society around us. So let's take the cup together. Lord, thank you for this 
wonderful time of reflection and commitment. Thank you, Lord, that you died on the cross for us that we might have life. And so help us to be faithful. Lord, uh, you are the one who grants and you are the one who denies. Uh, Help us not to resist where you deny. Help us to be faithful where you grant and to pursue it vigorously for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.